504 years ago today, Martin Luther began a movement that would reshape his home country of Germany, the European continent, and eventually the whole world. When Martin Luther opened a theological debate in the town of Wittenberg, Germany, concerning the Catholic Church's use of indulgences and the true nature of repentance, he thought he was just going to be talking and affecting the academy. Little did he know that this debate among the trained theologians of the day would eventually affect the lives of those who little or knew little or no theology at all. Luther lectured and taught on theology in the Bible at the University of Wittenberg. He wrote books and pamphlets. He preached sermons. And all of these things were used mightily, mightily of God to spark a spiritual awakening in Europe. But despite all of the academic and even pastoral output of Luther's life, it would, many would argue, be something far more ordinary that would become the most significant thing Luther did to affect change in the lives of ordinary people across Germany, Europe, and eventually the world. You see, on Tuesday, June 13, 1525, the former monk Martin Luther married a former nun, Katharina von Bora, who he would affectionately refer to as Katie. There were five people at their wedding. The city of Wittenberg gave the new couple 20 pieces of silver and a barrel of beer. <laughs> Amen. Maybe we should bring that tradition back. I don't know. Some of Luther's friends weren't supportive of his marriage. But Luther had come to believe that the Bible teaches that Christians, even priests and pastors, those serving the church vocationally, are free to marry. He'd come to believe that the yoke of celibacy that the Roman Catholic Church was mandating upon their priests and clergy was leading many into sin and devaluing a good gift from God. Luther's marriage to Katie then became yet another aspect of his protest against the unbiblical teachings and practices of the Catholic Church. Some scholars believe that Luther changed the course of ordinary European life more through his marriage than his books. It's one thing for a celibate pastor to stand up and say, marriage is allowable, or marriage is beautiful. It's another thing for that celibate pastor to, to then go and find a wife and get married. Luther's marriage elevated the status, not only of marriage, but of women and children. Luther supported efforts to defend women against sexist slurs, which is commonplace at that day and time. He believed women were a blessing from God, not a curse. He said, quote, Imagine what it would be like without the female sex. The home, cities, economic life, and government would virtually disappear. Men can't do without women. Even if it were possible for men to beget and bear children, they still couldn't do without women. Amen. Here's what Luther's saying. In other words, Luther is saying, even if women don't bear children, God is in the business of blessing the world through women. They aren't just 
baby-making machines. They're unique and beautiful and wonderful gifts to the created order. This view was countercultural then and now. Luther argued vehemently that both genders image God, and thus both genders, male and female, represent his righteous rule on the earth, whether in the home or in cities or in government. So Luther's marriage elevated the status of women, and by default the status of children also in, in the Christian home. Luther believed that the home was to be a small slice of heaven on earth, especially homes, homes blessed with faith, homes that had a husband and wife trusting the promises of God and pursuing godliness together. In those kinds of homes, Luther believed you could peer in and see something of heaven. Luther said that parents should give their children more than possessions, but should enrich their souls with the arts, with study, with sound literature and the fear of God. He said that if parents do this diligently, they will have, quote, plenty of opportunity for good works in their own households without running around looking for something to do, end quote. And he would argue that the best good work that a family unit can give themselves to is worshiping the Lord together. One of Luther's goals was to remove the center of spirituality from the monastery and bring it to the home. Luther argued and believed that each family should be a house of prayer and a school for, school for Christ. That each family was a worshiping unit. Luther Yes, he elevated the value and status of marriage and women and children, but he also set a precedent that had been long lost in much of the church at that time, and I'm afraid long lost today, that families are called to worship the Lord together. Today I want to talk to you about family worship. Family worship. And let me say at the very, very, very outset, this is not something I grew up with. This is not something that was taught to me in any of the churches I grew up in. This is not something that Susie and I do even remotely perfectly. We have so many starts and stops, and we fail so many times along the way. But nonetheless, I want to talk to you about family worship, something I haven't taught on before, and I think it's in light of the baby dedications we're doing today, I think it's a good opportunity to pause our study of Genesis and think for a few moments about family worship. Now, undoubtedly, God calls us to worship together regularly in a church family. As we learned just this morning in our training class, to be a Christian means to be in and at a church gathering. The New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who doesn't go to church. That's really a modern idea. The New Testament believes and teaches that if you are a Christian, you are gathering regularly with other Christians for worship, teaching, and fellowship. This is basic New Testament Christianity, which feels weird to us, only proving how far we've fallen away from the Bible. But the Bible also teaches that each family, as Luther tried to recapture, is a worshiping unit. We aren't just a worshiping church, but each family is a worshiping unit. Unit, a God-centered group of souls bound together in order to love and serve God. So having your family in a gospel-preaching church is crucial 
but it's not enough. The church is called to help parents disciple their children, not disciple them for you. I love the way Don Whitney says this. Parents, I just handed you guys a copy of that little book, Family Worship, by Don Whitney, professor of biblical spirituality at Southern Seminary. It's super short. It's 60 or 70 pages. You could read it this afternoon if you really wanted to. Much of what I'll say is wisdom from Dr. Whitney. Listen to what Whitney says about the need for parents to worship with their children. He says, quote, It's unlikely that exposure to the church once or twice a week will impress your children enough with the greatness and glory of God that they will want to pursue Him once they leave your home. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about the dangers of neglecting family worship. He says, quote, Sometimes we hear of children of Christian parents who do not grow up in the fear of God, and we are asked how it is that they turn out so badly. In many, very many cases, I fear there is such a neglect of family worship that it's not probable that the children are at all impressed by any piety supposed to be possessed by their parents, end quotes, end quote. In other words, I know Spurgeon can be a little verbose. He's simply saying that our kids will pick up on the things that we care about, period. This is, a, this is like one of Newton's rules of, of gravity or physics. I don't know. You scientists figure it out. It's just the way it is. We pick up and make our own the values we learn from our parents. The good, the bad, and the ugly. So parents, if we say we care about God, but then give Him 1% of our attention, what are our children learning from us? If we rarely talk about Him at home, or pray to Him at home, or worship Him at home, or study the Bible at home, then our kids will figure out eventually, because kids are not dumb, they're super smart, Amen. Kids will figure out that we don't really care about God even though we say we do on Sunday morning. The Barna Research Group found that 85% of parents with kids under the age of 13 believe they have the primary responsibility of teaching their kids about God. So that's great. Praise the Lord. 85% believe this is important. But... The research went on to find that a majority of these parents don't spend any time at all during the week teaching their kids about God. They generally rely on the church to give their children the religious training they need. So if parents are giving over their responsibility to the church for one day, maybe two days a week, no wonder so many of our kids for generations now in this country are growing up with little or no interest in God. Now, let me say a quick word about who this sermon is for. It's for everybody. Whether you're a parent with young children, you want to be a parent one day, maybe you know some parents. Maybe you, would, maybe you would live with another human being. I think if that applies, if any of that applies to you, then what I'm going to say today applies to you as well. Every home, every household, every apartment, every dorm, wherever two Christians, two or more Christians live together, there should be some form of regular worship of God. Whether it's parents with children, 
spouses with each other if you're empty nesters or don't have children yet, or roommates with each other. It shouldn't be weird for roommates to sit down together and pray together. If you're both believers in the same God, then it makes sense that you would pray to God before or after meals together. Now, there's a ton of freedom in what this looks like. There's no one specific way you have to do it. I don't think that family worship has the moral equivalency of the Ten Commandments. The Bible doesn't explicitly or directly command family worship, but it everywhere assumes that each household will worship God and teach children, especially, to know God. Again, Spurgeon says, quote, we may have no positive command for it, but we believe that it is so much in accord with the genius and spirit of the gospel and that it is so commended by the example of the saints that the neglect thereof is a strange inconsistency. So doing family worship in the way that I'm going to articulate it is not one of the Ten Commandments. But it is all over the Bible. I'm going to give you four Old Testament examples and then... One New Testament example. First, Genesis 18, 19. In Genesis 18, 19, the Lord says to Abraham, I have chosen him. He says about Abraham, I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now think about Abraham. He didn't have local synagogues or churches to rely upon. He would have had to do this teaching himself in his home or in his tents. He was responsible for commanding his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. It's Genesis 18, 19. Perhaps the best known passage in the Bible on parents teaching their children the things of God is what we heard Brittany read earlier. I'm going to read it again. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. The Shema. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel. This, by the way, is one of the most important, maybe the most important passage to an Israelite during the Old Testament times. So this is not some ancillary, random, you know, passage of Scripture. This is centered to the life and worship of the community of faith in Israel. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So Moses is telling parents to do more than family worship. He's actually telling them to make the truth and reality of God part of their everyday existence. When you walk, when you sit down, when you lay down, when you rise up, wherever you are, have the word of God so close to you that it's in between your eyes. That it's on your house. And they would literally do that eventually. The Word of God should be so closely related to your everyday life that it's normal to just talk about God. It's normal to talk about Jesus. It's normal to talk about the cross. It's normal to talk about sin. It's normal to talk about the church or the Bible and on and on we could go. 
This text is saying that parents must take every opportunity to teach their children the truths about God. One small way, Susie and I do this, we do it so many ways, but like if we're just walking outside, let's say it's an evening and the full moon is out, I'll be holding Lydia or one of my blessings, um, and I'll just say, who made the moon? Isn't it beautiful? Who made that? And it's so cool to hear their little voices say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus put the moon there. And dozens and dozens of examples could be given. Normal discourse about God and who He is and what He's done should be normal parts of our lives. Now, the best way to take the Shema and do this consistently with all of our children at once, arguably, is through a time of family worship where we together, regularly, all at once, think about God together. Pray and worship God together. Again, remember, weekly or congregational worship didn't begin for the Israelites until after the exile when the people began then to meet weekly for worship in synagogues. Before then, those who wanted to worship God corporately with other people would have to travel great distances to go to the tabernacle or to the temple. So, for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and the Israelites, when they came into the promised land, and then Joshua... And those who settled in the promised land. For all of these Israelites, when congregational worship was not a thing, how did they do what Joshua says in Joshua 24, 24, 15? Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How would he do that if there weren't regular congregational worship times? Well, he would do it literally with his house. He would do that with his children with those who lived in his household. Regular times of worship with his family would surely have been how Joshua fulfilled this resolve. Now Psalm 78 is the next passage. I'll invite you to turn there because it's a bit longer. Psalm 78, if you're using the Pew Bibles, that's page 457. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. It's a really long psalm. We're only going to read the first eight verses. Psalm 78, we're going to find more instruction on training the next generation. And I hope, again, you're starting to see a pattern that teaching the next generation the things of God is all over the Bible. Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ear to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that... We have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. And arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So verse 5 says the fathers were commanded to teach their children the law of God so that they wouldn't be like previous generations. I don't know about you guys, but I'm thankful for my family in so many ways. But I also want 
my family to, as some would say, start a new branch on the family tree. I want me and my family to look different from what I'm coming from. I don't think I'm alone in that. I want the generation coming from me and Susie forward to be different from the generations we've come from. And that doesn't just happen magically. It doesn't just happen as we kind of pray sporadically for God to, you know, bless our children and keep them safe. These cliche prayers. Rather, it happens through, as the text says, teaching the next generation the works of God, the might of God, the law of God, teaching them and teaching them and teaching them and keep on teaching them until they get it, until it's their turn to then teach the next generation, the children yet unborn. I so want my family to look different. I also so know that I can't do it. I absolutely can't change my kids. I can't change the trajectory of my family line. I absolutely can't, and neither can you. But Jesus can, right? If he's alive from the dead and his word is true, then he can do anything. He can pull something out of nothing. This kind of teaching in Psalm 78, again, didn't happen in the tabernacle or the temple when thousands of Israelites would gather together. Yes, the law of God was taught in those large corporate gatherings, no doubt about it. But this kind of teaching to the next generation likely happened when the families were gathered around their fires, around the family table for a meal. And here's the point. Look at verse 7. The whole point of this family worship thing is so that, it's a purpose clause, verse 7, so that, so we should teach the next generation what God has done, who God is, what His Word says, so that, verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God. Family worship has conversion as its aim. Knowing we can't convert our children, but that our children would learn to set their hope in God is our aim. This is why I love the first question of the New City Catechism. Parents, I just gave you a copy of that. If you're a parent and you'd like a copy, there's a few more on the table out in the foyer. The first question of the New City Catechism is, by the way, we're only doing the kids' version in our house because all of us need shorter and not longer. So the kids' version says, what is our only hope in life and death? What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own. Belong to God. That's right. Whether we live, whether we live, whether we die, we have one hope. God owns us. We belong to Him. So we're teaching our children where to put their hope. We're not just teaching them a body of doctrine because we want them to have big heads and have all the answers and be the superstar in Sunday school, you know. We're teaching them to set their hopes, their affections, to orient their lives around the being of God and not transient temporal things that this world offers. In family worship, our aim is to create hope in God in the hearts of our children through His Word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the Old Testament. Let's fast forward and just do one New Testament passage, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is to husbands and wives and then to children at the beginning of chapter 6. 
in Ephesians 5, and we're not going to read the whole text, but in verse 26, Paul is exhorting husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. This is Christ sanctifying her, us, his church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. But Paul's drawing a parallel between what Jesus has done and is doing for his church and what husbands must be doing for their brides, their wives. They must be washing her with the water of the word. One way to bring the pure, the pure water of the word of God into our marriages is through the practice of family worship. You don't have to have a 30-minute devotional at bedtime. You could have it around the dinner table with your spouse. So if you're an empty nester or if you're married but don't have kids yet, this still applies to you. Husbands, you're still called to wash your wife with the pure water of the Word of God. Now, verse, chapter 6, verse 4, if you'll just look down a little bit further, Paul gets specifically, even more specifically, addressing fathers and children. Verse 4, chapter 6, fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger. Boy, that's convicting. Just stop there and I'll repent for a minute. At least I need to. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But here's the reverse of that. Here's the opposite of that. Here's the contrast. So you can either constantly be riling up your children or... Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Who is Paul talking to? What's the first word of verse 4? A little bit louder, someone said it. Fathers. The Apostle Paul singles you out, Dad. Fathers. Fathers. Bring up your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is making it clear that this is not something we can contract out to our wives because, you know, they're the spiritual ones. This is not something we can contract out to the church or the schools. Paul says, Dad, this is your job. You do this. You're the head of the house. You lower yourself. You humble yourself. You embrace the awkwardness of the moment, and you lead your family in worship. So dads, when do you do this? When do you do this? I know many of us, many of you, you have kids that are grown and gone. You're like, man, I, you're kind of feeling some conviction right now. And I am too, by the way, because I'm not great at this. Just ask Susie after the service. Here's the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus Christ on the cross died for all of our sins, including our negligence as fathers. Dads, we have no hope apart from Jesus' rescue. Our sin of neglect alone is enough to damn us. God's given us these image bearers to shepherd and love and nurture and discipline and instruct, and we just take them to church and assume that's okay. God, help us. And also, dads, come back to the gospel. Come back to the cross. Come back to the grace of God in Christ. All of our sins have been washed away. So that now you have the opportunity to, to teach others 
to disciple young men in the church in things that maybe you didn't do very well and things that they should be doing with their families. You have the opportunity to start obeying this text and helping other brothers to obey this text. If you are a dad with small children, children at home, when do you do this? This could be done anytime. But again, I'm arguing that having a consistent father-led time of family worship is one of the best ways to obey this command. And I'm not saying that our dear wives have no role to play. Trust me, without Susie, family family worship wouldn't happen. It's just too chaotic. And there's, Susie can attest to this. There's so many times I'm like trying to explain something. I'm like, Susie, please help me out because I don't know how to break this down for a five-year-old. Please help. Please lead. Please help. Please jump in here. This is not that dads do it all. It's just that dads bear the burden of responsibility for making sure it gets done. Interesting. Interestingly, Paul later says in 1 Timothy 3 that men who want to be elders or pastors in the church must be managing their house or they're not ready to manage God's house. Now surely that means more than making sure the bills are paid. Surely Paul means something along the lines of, hey men, if you want to lead in the church, if you want to lead the church in worship, then you need to start leading your family in worship first. You're not qualified to do the one if you're not doing the other. Now, family worship is probably not as difficult or complicated as you might think. It's probably a lot simpler than you think. Again, back to Don Whitney's little book. I love the way he explains it. He says, here's what family worship means, like practically. Here's what you need to do. You need to read, sing, and pray. Read, sing, and pray. Do something with the Bible, sing something about God, and pray to God. This is not complicated. This is not rocket surgery. This is very simple. This can be, actually be done without preparing anything. Just sit down, show up, open the Bible. I guess you have to prepare a song or you know a song. or you know, Lead your family in prayer. There's literally not a lot of preparation, if any, needed. Find what works with your family. There's a bunch of ways to do this. Depending on the stage of life you're in, it's going to look differently. Last year I realized that reading long passages of Scripture wasn't helpful or possible. I like started us in Genesis and I was like, I'm going to read the whole Bible with my family. And then I realized after you know, a bit that I had a one-year-old, a four-year-old, and a seven-year-old. And it was not going well, so we shifted gears and we started slowly working through the New City Catechism instead, talking about it as we go along. Parents, let me give you five tips to help you get started. If you're like, John, this is all new. I've never even heard of this. What are you talking about? Let me give you five things just to jot down to help you get started and start talking together with your spouse. Maybe some of this could get the conversation going. Number one, choose a good time. Choose a good time. Choose a good time. Choose a strategic time. Attach family worship to another daily event where the family is already together. This could be breakfast, lunch, dinner, bedtime. It doesn't really matter. But choose a strategic time, perhaps attaching it to another family event that's already happening, making it a very natural transition. Second, make it short and simple. 
So choose a good time. Second, make it short and simple. Make it short and simple. Dad, you're not leading a seminary class. You don't have to do a mini sermon or a mini church service. It doesn't need to be long and complicated. In fact, if you try long and complicated, you're going to stop before the habit gets started. Ten minutes or less with depending on how old your children are, is generally just enough time to read, sing, and pray. If it's going well, lengthen it. But don't make it tedious by making it long. And if it still feels complicated after these tips, come and grab me. I have some excellent resources I'd love to put in your hands. So choose a good time. Make it short and simple. Third, make it consistent. Make it consistent. Make family worship a normal thing that you do together as a family. The more consistently you do it, the easier and more natural it'll become. And then fourth, related to number three, be flexible. So make it consistent, but be flexible. So for example, we had to take Gideon to the ER on one of the nights of this weekend, Friday. And so we didn't have family worship on Friday because everything got thrown into chaos mode. And that's okay. God is not in heaven, you know, ready to crash our family down, you know, smash our family down because we didn't have family worship one night because my son was in the ER because he dislocated his elbow, which he's okay, by the way. It's a funny story. Ask Susie later. Be flexible and be flexible. Make it consistent, but be flexible. Little ones aren't always going to be able to listen quietly while you pontificate on the Trinity. Or be able to make it through all four verses of holy, holy, holy. Or pray about everything on the prayer list. Work up. Start small and work up. Sometimes kids and parents are melting down after a really long day. And we need five minutes, not 15. Amen? Sometimes it's the parents who are melting down more than the the children. And we need five minutes, not 15. Dad, again, dads, it's your job to make it a blessing and not a burden to your family. Pray for wisdom. Remember, remember it's, a, it's the spirit. It's the spirit of God who must change your children, not you. Fifth and finally, pursue the work with faith. Pursue the work with faith. As Pastor David Murray says, sometimes... The intimidation factor or the discouragement factor are actually unbelieving factors. We don't actually believe that God will use and bless this to the salvation of our children. Above all, build your hopes and your faith on the truth that God can take his word with prayer and worship and bless it to your children's salvation. Choose a good time. Make it short and simple. Make it consistent. Be flexible. Pursue the work with faith. I read a story also this week where the parents were having a 50th anniversary celebration and all the siblings decided to say something to their mom and dad. And one of the sons said this to his dad. He said, quote, When I was only three, dad, God used you in family worship to convict me that Christianity was real. When he was three. God used you 
in family worship to convict me that Christianity was real. No matter how far I went astray in later years, I could never seriously question the reality of Christianity. And I want to thank you for that. Dads, I pray that our kiddos will be able to say something like that in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Moms, wouldn't it be beautiful to hear that? That it was your steady hand, your commitment to the word and prayer and worship that showed your kids that what we do at church on Sunday is not just a thing we do, but an identity. It's who we are. I pray that my kids would say something like that in 50 years. In the meantime, let's all pursue this work with faith that God's word is able to bring something out of nothing. By God's grace and his grace alone, our children will come to believe what we constantly set before them as good and true and beautiful. Our children won't be saved through dedication and our children won't be saved through family worship, but our children will be saved through the word of God. So let's keep pouring it on them and building up kindling around their hearts, praying that the Holy Spirit would ignite that truth one day with faith and repentance. Our children will worship what we worship. So like Martin Luther, let's make sure that in our homes and in our hearts, we worship God. Like Luther, let's change the world through the ordinariness of God-centered homes. And people in our culture will think we're weird, crazy, and even stupid for devoting time to family worship. But if the example of Luther teaches us anything, it's that God can literally change the world through the ordinary means of grace. So may God bring about a modern reformation in and through us as we pursue worshiping the Lord together in our families and in our homes. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would remind us this morning that Christ has paid our debt once and for all. Every failing of ours, every failing of mine, every failing of every dad, of every mom, every failing of every parent was nailed to the cross and removed forever. For everyone who trusts in Jesus, they have been made new and forgiven and redeemed and adopted and justified. They don't have to work into your grace. They already have it. Please remind us, Father, as we hear a message about something I believe we should be doing, I think the Bible gives us clear and repeated precedent for this practice. But Lord, please help us not to turn it into some legalistic work or competition amongst families to see who can turn out the most spiritual and theologically minded children. Lord, may our goal be so that they may set their hope on God. Period. We want our children to hope in God. This this world is going to just... Do every, and Satan is going to do everything it can, he can, to 
suffocate the hope of our children. I pray that through your word and through the worship of our families, you would increase their hope in Jesus Christ, in the world to come, in the promises of God. Lord, bless our parents, bless our homes, bless our children, bless those who have roommates, empty nesters, everybody, Father, who lives with somebody can be doing something to make the worship of God a more central part of our lives. Help us. Give us wisdom and grace. Give us diligence. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.